Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, the situation in the Ukraine continues to become more interesting and more delicate as the Russians hold their ground. The State Department takes a very strong, strong take against Moscow. And, oh, by the way, Prime Minister Netanyahu and APAC are in town. We've got a lot of cover today. Special guest, Director Cullen from the State Department, former Chief of Staff to Colin Powell. This is Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon, everybody in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it's the time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, joining me around the table, we have got a huge show to get to, so we're going to get right to it. Joining me around the table is former Congressman from Washington State, Al Swift, former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation, Bob Hines, former Undersecretary of Commerce, Alan Moore, Longtime Washington insider, Dan Lipner. Uh, folks, we've got a jam-packed show. Obviously, if you have not been monitoring what's been going on in the Ukraine, it has gotten interesting. Uh, that's the least we can say about that situation. But we're going to get right to our first guest. Joining us right now from Syracuse, uh, from Syracuse University, he is the former chief of staff for Secretary of State Colin Powell. He is, a, uh, he is now currently the Director of National Security Studies at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at the great school, Syracuse University. Joining us now, he is Colonel Bill Smullen. Colonel, welcome to Backroom Politics. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Justin. Thank you. Uh, Colonel, a lot of events have been going on surrounding what's been happening in the Ukraine over the past week and especially over the last 24 hours. Um, you've obviously been monitoring the situation. It, what is your initial take on why Moscow would make the endeavor to originally go into Crimea but hold their ground on supporting uh, the former regime that was just ousted last week? Oh, clearly the former regime sided with uh, the views of Russia and was leaning towards an association with Russia that the majority of the population of the Ukraine did not agree with. And that's why the unrest occurred, and that's why he was ousted from office. And uh, President Putin took exception to that and decided that he was going to impose his will and his force on the Crimea, where he had some degree of right in that there is a, a naval installation there and, and other uh, facilities and a large number of pro-Russian citizens in the Crimea. However, he violated the Ukrainian sovereignty and and that obviously runs counter to international law. So he, he cannot justify what he did and he has boxed himself in to a certain degree. Uh, Colonel, you know, the, the, the quick question that everybody looks at 
is, you know, is this a matter of Vladimir Putin threatening Ukrainian national security and sovereignty, or is this just a situation where, as Vladimir Putin has said it over in the past uh, at least 48 hours, this is a situation where he is protecting Russian nationals from ultra-nationalist Ukrainian people and protecting his fleet in the Black Sea. I don't think he can justify what he did by saying it's protecting citizens and his fleet. His fleet is not in danger, and those citizens are not in danger. I think the ironic aspect of what he has done is that uh, President Putin spends an awful lot of time worrying about the territorial integrity of Syria, for example, and he, he rails against external intervention uh, in the internal affairs of sovereign states, yet he has violated the sovereignty of a neighboring country. He, he can't have it both ways. He's either for or against the, the violation of a nation's sovereignty, and clearly in this case he has violated. I don't think he had anything at risk here. I think, quite honestly, uh, and he lives in the past, and uh, unfortunately he st still has an imperial mindset. He would love to have not just Crimea, he would love to have Ukraine uh, once again under Russian jurisdiction in whatever form or fashion he uh, perceives. So uh, I think he has a very difficult time justifying what he has done. Uh, Bob Hines, you have a question for the Colonel. Yes, Colonel. Uh, my impression is that uh, the population uh, of Ukraine in the eastern part and southern part, including the Crimea, have a substantial percentage of, of, uh, of Russian-speaking and Russians. But I have never uh, understood that there was a, uh, a problem between the Ukrainian citizens, the Ukraines, and the, and the Russians who are living in the Ukraine. Is, is uh, and I haven't seen Putin raise that subject, but is 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 that part of the equation here? Is there a problem with the Russians down there having problems? Well, he's got a lot of Russians or ethnic Russians in uh, Crimea who would love to have a relationship with with Russia. Just to put numbers in perspective, the total population of the Ukraine is 45 million, 45 and a half million people. There are about 96,000 Russian citizens in the Ukraine throughout the country, and that was the last uh, uh, number as a result of the last national census. So I think it's still pretty accurate. And there are about 7 to 8 million ethnic Russians in the Ukraine. Of, of that 7 or 8 million, uh, about 1.2 million of them reside in uh, Crimea. So about an eighth of the population of Crimea would love to be under Russian control again in one form or another. But you can't just do business that way. It has to be done legitimately, and uh, this really needs to be done under the guise of a legitimate government in the Ukraine. And that's the uncertainty that we face at the moment in that the former prime minister was evicted, and uh, we're not sure of his exact whereabouts, but he, I presume he's somewhere in Russia. Uh, but uh, we have an interim prime minister now, uh, or, or president, rather, 
uh, Turchinov, uh, who uh, indeed is trying to hold the nation together. And quite frankly, I think uh, that is going to be the wild card, and we're going to have to see how uh, he uh, survives the day. And he is attempting to talk to Russia. He has approached them w- uh, with... Uh, phone calls and dispatches, there has been no response from Russia. So he's, he's uh, having a little bit of difficulty with the dialogue. And, and, of course, what we all want here is some kind of a negotiated settlement between the nation of Ukraine and, and the, the, uh, the nation of Russia. Uh, Alan Moore with a question. Yeah, uh, Colonel, I was intrigued that, that uh, President Putin said uh, today or yesterday it's that, that these were not Russian troops that were active. Um, uh, he denied that they were Russian. He said they're wearing uniforms, but they're not Russian army mil- uniforms. You can get uniforms all over the, uh, the former Soviet Union. For me, that suggests that he was trying to distance himself a little bit instead of taking responsibility for the activity, it looked to me like he was trying to distance himself. Um, what, what's, your, what, what's your take on, on, uh, on that? I, I would agree with you that he is trying to distance himself from what looks like an act of aggression. However, it's almost laughable that those troops in uniform uh, are not Russian um, soldiers. And it's rather strange that if they aren't Russian soldiers, that they would be driving Russian vehicles and uh, carrying Russian weapons. I mean, these are, these are Russian troops uh, in every sense of the word, and for him to say what he's saying is, is just, uh, for him, an opportunity to try to uh, fudge on the truth of the matter. But, 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 but is there a chance that that might be a good thing? Yes, it is, I think, because what I've sensed in the last 24 hours is that he has chosen to slow this movement down and not ratchet it up with with stronger rhetoric or with uh, uh, a stronger stand with what he intends to do. And quite frankly, I think because the international community has voiced their very, very strong objection to what has occurred here and because they have suggested that they have some response in store for Russia, which will not be helpful to, uh, to Putin's nation and to him personally, he's chosen to pause and to see what happens next. And quite frankly, I would hope what happens next is that he will even start to withdraw uh, some of the 16,000 soldiers, Russian soldiers, oh, by the way, that he has sent into the Crimea. And, and that's really what I think the world community needs. And quite frankly, if he does that, then we can have some effective and constructive dialogue again. Uh, Colonel, it, it's just been reported over the past uh, hour and a half, the, uh, uh, the State Department has confirmed, as has DOD, as well as uh, the Kremlin, that in fact the Russians did test and fire an intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missile down in the southern provinces of the uh, Russian Federation. Even though that this was on the books, and even though this was in accordance with the START II treaty, 
is could could President Putin have called this off as a goodwill gesture, or does this just continue to promote his strength policy on the situation, showing that he is the big player that he wants to be? I think it's a signal, it's a sign of strength, power, capability that he has exercised here. Uh, the, the president of North Korea does the same thing when there's a military exercise taking place in South Korea. He fires missiles into the sea to show that he's still got a capability that everybody should be aware of. Unfortunately, it has just the opposite effect. First of all, most most of what is fired is uh, is is not very powerful in the true sense of the word, but more importantly, it it shows that uh, b- both of these leaders choose to exercise might over right, and and I I'm a little dis- bit disappointed in what has occurred. Congressman Al Swift with a question, sir. Director, your, your last remark reminds me of an article, a commentary that was in maybe Sunday's paper, editorial page of the Washington Post in the last couple of days, in which the theme was that Putin has made a mistake, an error. Uh, did you happen to read the article? I did. And quite frankly, I, I agree with the fact that I think he has overstepped uh, his bounds and good sense here. I think he was feeling, feeling full of himself after Sochi and the uh, Winter Olympics and the fact that they were relatively successful. It cost a bundle of money, but relatively successful. He had a G8 summit coming up. He was looking real powerful and probably feeling quite smug. So he did something that he thought would be um, an opportunity to perhaps gain additional uh, support from those Russians who favor uh, his, uh, who are living in Crimea but favor his country. And I think he, quite frankly, uh, not only made a mistake in judgment, but he has boxed himself in with respect to how the international community has accepted what he has done. Dan Lipner with a question. Uh, Colonel Smullen, I was kind of curious as to your thoughts on the regional players. I know the neocons in the United States are trying to make this a Marocentric problem, but uh, what are your thoughts on the the contact group as the Germans have proposed and the other regional players, and if you could also throw in the collapse of the ruble as it has resulted from uh, the Russians' action? Well, I think the, uh, the European nations particularly those that have trading rela- trade relationships with Russia, are very, very important here. And Germany is the largest uh, trading partner of Russia. So they clearly have a stake in this, and Chancellor Merkel has expressed her dismay with what he has done, with what, what Putin has done. And quite frankly, she has some influence over the ruble, if you will, so I think people are going to have a, in any camp, are going to have a difficult time justifying what Putin has done. My biggest fear, however, is that typical of what is happening in Washington these days, that the Republicans are feeling uh, pretty happy at the moment that the president has another foreign policy problem on his plate. We don't need that kind of non-support. What we do need 
is bipartisan congressional support for whatever short of uh, using military force the president says he is going to impose if this continues. But my hope is that we're all going to be able to back down in a short period of time here and look at this as just a, it's just a, a bad here day. Uh, Colonel, you know, we, we, we've been talking about the major players. I mean, we cannot, you know, deny the fact that, you know, Secretary of State Kerry has been in Kiev. He was there, to, he was there today, uh, is now on his way back. But uh, there's no question that uh, Foggy Bottom has taken a very strong approach on the uh, Crimean situation. It, it just seems, however, that when the State Department and the U.S. government speaks on this, it's somehow falling on deaf ears regionally. Is this a situation where this has just gotten away from them, or is this a situation continuing, uh, the State Department not truly getting their arms wrapped around the current state of international affairs in the region? Well, I think what has happened here uh, is that the president, absent good options, chose to launch uh, Secretary Kerry to Kiev, so that he could have a discussion with the interim government. I'm not personally uh, convinced that that was the right thing to do. Why? Uh, because, once again, the United States is the first nation globally to take action, to do something to solve a problem. And other nations, yeah, they, they have a, a, a bit of rhetoric to support whatever it is that we are for, but they choose not to do anything other than uh, talk a good game. So the United States, once again, was the first out of the box and the first one to go out and do something to uh, express our concern, our disapproval, our dismay. But I don't see a lot of other countries. Certainly the United Nations has not been very helpful. They have, I've listened to some of their the conversations, some of the dialogue that occur, has occurred over the last couple of days, not very helpful because it, it hasn't imposed any uh, sort of um, concern, I don't think, in Putin's mind, and it hasn't imposed any kind of uh, difficulty for him economically or diplomatically or politically. So, uh, you know, we, we have to be very careful that we can't solve all of the problems and that whenever we sit down to determine what we're going to do with regard to strategy, that we need to think it through. And, and I'm just a, a big believer that our strategic thinking and our strategic planning as a government has not been very good lately. It actually hasn't been very good for a long time. And we need to do a better job of that and think about the consequences of Secretary Kerry going to Kiev. Is it going to do anything but probably instill more concern in Putin's mind with regard to what his next move should be now that we have loaned them or gifted them a good deal of money, then the government of Ukraine a good deal of money to help get them jump-started again? Uh, I'm not sure that that was helpful. That should have been an international community gesture rather than just the United States doing something. Well, Colonel, it, it, it also seems to me, at least, just on the forefront, that NATO is in a very delicate position right now. Uh, over the weekend, we had the Secretary General of NATO 
basically condemning the the actions of the Russian government. But even though NATO has the Ukraine as a kind of an affiliate member, it still is taking a tone of an attack on the Ukraine is an, an attack on NATO. Is that the right approach, or are they not making any attempts to de-escalate the situation uh, out, of, out of Brussels? Well, they are having an emergency meeting today. It was convened uh, at the request of Poland, and it's going to involve ambassadors of all 28 NATO states, allies, and I do think that that is helpful. Once again, I'm a big believer in finding a body of nations to help solve a problem rather than one nation solving a problem. Yeah, there are a lot more nations in the United Nations, so maybe that's a, a lot more difficult to do. But with 28 nations, we ought to be able to come up with uh, some kind of a solution, particularly an economic solution, to put more pressure on the Russian economy. If, if faucets or spigots are turned off, that is going to hurt the uh, Russian economy, which just uh, invested an awful lot of money in the in the Winter Olympics there and is probably not feeling uh, very uh, uh, complete with regard to its uh, economic position these days. So I do think that there is some value in it. I'm not convinced that the, there is going to be any uh, in, initiatives that are going to be advanced by those 28 nations, but because Ukraine is certainly interested in joining NATO one day, then we need to uh, certainly be uh, cognizant of that uh, interest and, and protective of their rights as a sovereign nation. Dan Lipner, question? Uh, Colonel, I was intrigued with what you said about the United Nations. Uh, as I recall, the UN Charter uh, considers ter territorial sovereignty a moral absolute, and the UN's failure to speak up more aggressively on the current situation. I was wondering if you could expand on that a bit more. I'm in total agreement that they have uh, been ineffective, and quite frankly, they show no strength, they show no uh, purpose, they show no uh, ability to come up with solutions for this problem. And the dialogue that needs to take place, perhaps, should take place behind closed doors and not just in open sessions because that doesn't amount to, amount to an awful lot. Unfortunately, when Russia, as a member of the uh, Security Council, has a veto right, there, there's not much that can be um, done economically that they couldn't uh, scuttle with a, a veto. But I do think that there needs to be some backdoor dialogue that occurs here, and, and, and it should be happening in, in that body. And quite frankly, they have the reputation, the United Nations has a reputation of being ineffective when it comes to these kinds of issues. Uh, Alan Moore, question? Uh, yeah, Colonel. Um, you, you made a reference much earlier on about, I, I think you used the word uh, eviction to describe what happened to the previous Prime Minister, to Yanukovych. And it seems to me, though, that it's not at all clear that he had to leave. Now, maybe he obviously felt he had to leave, but and, it, and it's possible that after the 70 people, were, 70 plus to 80 people were killed, um, that he uh, that he felt like his life was at, at, at risk. But 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 what I'd like you to just 
just speculate a little bit on, on, this situ on this notion. He didn't have to leave. Obviously, it was a very delicate situation. He had just come to a new agreement, so it looked like. Um, and, then, and then all hell broke loose. A bunch of people were killed. Hundreds of thousands of people showed up in the streets. When, when things looked like they were going to begin to die down, no one was expecting that, including Mr. President Putin. He, being a tough guy and, and, and being able to thumb his nose at the rest of the world, including the U.S., suddenly thought, hey, maybe this is my opening, and moved fairly aggressively, but in a way that went where he had plausible deniability, as we talked before, and now he's trying to, to back off a little bit. I guess what I'm thinking is things, things got out of control pretty early here, um, and, and now he realizes there are going to be probably some significant consequences, and he, he, Putin, is trying to figure out his way. But it all started with the killings and then the prime minister choosing, so I would argue, to leave rather than stay and try to put his agreement into place. Any comment on that? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think he was feeling the heat. I think the protests and the deaths and the fact that uh, he, he could have indeed been um, surrounded by the protesters in a way that he couldn't escape. He chose to uh, at least find another place initially in, in the Ukraine. He went to a sanctuary uh, hiding spot there. And then it was thought that he went to Crimea. I think he's probably now in Russia. So all he chose to do was to escape the wrath and uh, perhaps uh, some harm that could have come to him and his following. So it was unexpected to a certain degree, but quite frankly, when you're in that kind of a pressure-packed situation and when you feel that your life is being threatened uh, or potentially could be threatened, it's probably uh, smart to get out while the getting is good, which is what he did. Uh, Colonel, we've got a few more minutes here real quick. Uh, Bob Hines has a question real quick. and. Colonel, uh, right now it seems like the probably Western, Western Europe uh, countries, EU and whatnot, will probably want to have some sanctions. We'll probably do the same. Maybe the world banking system will close down basically the Russian ability to finance itself, and you know there there'll be a deep problem. How possible to see that? How, how is Putin going to possibly be able to to back down from what he's done? Uh, because it's such an egregious, egregious violation of all international norms. If he doesn't, if he doesn't back down, what's going to happen? And can he back down? I think he can back down. I mean, he uh, to an earlier question, he has denied that these are Russian troops, so he can just say uh, they were uh, soldiers that had decided to arm themselves with uniforms and equipment to show support for uh, those Russians living in Crimea and the interest of the Russian Federation in, uh, in, in Crimea. So he can use deniability as a, an excuse and just say, not sure where they came from. Uh, I, I have no intention of uh, invading the Ukraine. I do have an interest in protecting my military interest in the Crimea and uh, which were not really being threatened at all 
and quite frankly, he can just go home. Uh, is he going to look frail if he does? Probably. But the beats the alternatives, which would perhaps result in uh, a military action against the Ukrainians, who I thought were marvelous today when they marched with uh, Ukrainian flags and not guns and other weapons and walked right up to these soldiers uh, and and confronted them. Uh, that was a <clears throat> that was a wonderful tactic, uh, but I would hate to see the alternative, which is when people start firing at one another, because that's just going to lead to bloodshed and that's going to lead to uh, a hot war. And we certainly don't need a, a hot war in that country. What we need is good, calm, cool. Uh, decision-making on the part of both sides. And I think Putin, the next move is his. It's like a chess game. And he has moved some of his pieces too quickly and in the wrong way. And now he has the opportunity, if he wants to continue to play this game, he can move some other pieces to uh, find a, a safe uh, spot on the board. And I think Quite frankly, uh, that's probably what I would advise him to do. Make up an excuse. Make up any story you want. He's already made up some stories that are not truthful, but uh, protect him for the moment. So he can make up any story he wants and say, um, you know, th th this is not something that we are part of. Uh, Colonel, uh, last question real quick before we go to break, uh, and we appreciate your time. Obviously, your time is very valuable. Uh, there's a lot of sectors in the international community that feel that the American take on, you know, violating national sovereignty, putting forces in to a sovereign nation is almost hypocritical. There are some that criticize the State Department for commenting on this after our action recently in Iraq, after Afghanistan. Uh, is, is that an argument that holds water, or is that just the typical anti-American rhetoric that we would expect from some of those players? Well, to a degree, I think it has legitimacy with respect to Iraq. We had no business invading Iraq. Uh, we did it for the wrong reasons. Uh, that's 2020 uh, uh, hindsight. With Afghanistan, however, we did have a right and a responsibility uh, to uh, react to the events of 9-11. And we did have a right, in my view, to unseat the Taliban and to uh, put forces on the ground to try to find Osama bin Laden. Uh, we didn't do that effectively, and unfortunately the cost has been very great. We've been there in Afghanistan since October of 2001, and we don't know what the future holds with respect to how much longer we will have troops on the ground. Will it be December of 2014, or as the President uh, wishes, that we'll even keep a residual force there beyond uh, 2014. I'm not sure how long is long, but it has been, in my view, humble view, far too long. So I think we need to disengage from Afghanistan as quickly as we possibly can, and I think we need to use this as another life lesson for us as a nation. How, how do we do what we do and why do we do what we do? Once again, back to strategic thinking and strategic planning. Uh, what we ought to put on the table as we're discussing those kinds of things is what are the consequences of our 
next actions as a nation. And I think in the case of Iraq, we have no, we have no legitimate uh, justification for what we did there. Wow. Uh, again, Colonel Bill Smolin, former Chief of Staff at the State Department under Colin Powell, current Director of Political Science up at the Maxwell School at the great school, Syracuse University. Colonel, again, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your insight. Hope you'll join us again. I've enjoyed this. Thank you all very much. Great questions. Thanks a lot, Colonel. Take care. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue the discussion. Joining us will be our international expert from the Eurasia Center, Dr. Ralph Winnie, to talk about the continuing situation in the Ukraine. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political radio show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, joining us for our discussion, continuing on the Crimean crisis in the Ukraine, he is Dr. Ralph Winnie, Vice President of the Eurasia Center here in Washington, D.C. Ralph, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be stateside with everybody. Thanks. Appreciate you joining us. Hey, uh... Want to continue on? First of all, I mean, Colonel Swellen, great insight, and you want to talk about a true insider. I mean, former chief of staff at, at State Department, he's definitely got his facts straight on, which makes obviously Alan Moore very happy. But this situation continues to get very, very delicate. We're talking about a situation where, you know, we've got Foggy Bottom and the folks at State Department and Secretary Kerry going over to Kiev, Ralph and saying, look, this is, this is absolutely an international crime. The Hague should be looking into this. They should withdraw. But you're also talking about a situation where Europe depends on energy, whether you want to look at it in the, you know, a third or more than a third, however you want to look at it. That's a dangerous situation, Ralph. Right. And unfortunately, uh, Putin thought himself in the situation. His initial idea was to provoke a clash in Crimea, and then be able to uh, come in and offer his services to resolve the problem, i.e. the issue with uh, the uh, minority Russian population. But what's happened now is he's not been, uh, he, he did not uh, anticipate the reaction from the U.S. and the EU to the situation. And at this point, you, the U.S. and the EU have got to keep up the pressure. Make the Russians take the first move. Do not uh, incites a conflict that would that would ensure the Russians would come but, in. But Ralph, it, it, it seems to me that, that that quite frankly, the U.S. government really doesn't have a solid leg to stand on. This is not a situation that, if you look at it globally, poses a clear and present danger. You're looking at a situation that is more regional. Is this more an EU-centric situation versus? Uh, a, a global situation involving the U.S.? Well, I think it's certainly a global situation because it tests America's resolve. Uh, you have to look at what China is doing. They're sitting back and they're watching how the U.S. and the West is reacting to um, a leader like Putin that's trying to assert his sphere of influence. The Chinese, it's been alleged, are trying to assert their sphere of influence in Southeast Asia and the South China Sea. And they are looking to see how the West deals with this, this situation. If they let Putin um, roll over everybody. It's going to embolden the, the Chinese. Well, okay, but Alan Moore, when when you look at this situation, even even Colonel Smolin was a little bit hesitant about having John Kerry, Secretary of State, being on the forefront of this situation. This puts us in a really bad and delicate situation globally, does it not, Alan? Well, he 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 thinks that the U.S has been cautious, needs to continue to be cautious, and not get out front all by itself. Putin got out front all by himself. He's trying to, to scale it back. We're trying to both look strong um, for domestic and international purposes, but not get way ahead of ourselves. Let's remember, though, one of the main strategic interests that the U.S. has here. When the Soviet Union broke up in the early 90s, there were, on Ukrainian soil, a thousand nuclear warheads. A thousand. How do you get rid of them? Here's this new country. They've got a thousand nuclear warheads. They don't have any capability of sort of managing them, protecting them, and so on. 
But they are one of the but biggest Alan, nuclear countries in the but world. But let me interject something. No, you just a minute. The U.S. and Russia and European countries, key European allies and NATO said, you give up your nukes and we will protect and honor and respect your sovereignty going forward. If we don't do that, we and, and, and Europe fail to protect and acknowledge their sovereignty, what signal does that say to anybody and everybody else who wants a nuke, uh, is thinking about a nuke, wants to keep a nuke? It is a major strategic interest. Dan Whitner. Well, in response to what Alan just said, the, the reference to nuclear weapons, is all, that, that's already been established under the Bush administration. If you're packing heat, the United States suddenly doesn't pay as much interest in you. And this has been true with Pakistan, India, and North Korea. And as far as the nuclear disarmament, I expect uh, Dr. Winnie can go into this a little bit more, in a little bit more detail. But the Ukrainians are heroes for their self-disarmament, for not, taking, for not keeping the nuclear weapons on their territory that they knew they could not handle on their own. Ralph, Ralph we're talking about nuclear weapons that theoretically should have been part of START II. The Ukrainians stepped in and took over their own sovereignty as a point of disarmament. This is a country that begs, or that, that prolifer, or non-proliferation is a key cornerstone in their government policy. Uh, absolutely, and I think one of the U.S.'s trump cards is to uh, say that they're going to pull out of the New START. Uh, many people have alleged that this agreement, the New START agreement, was adverse to U.S. interests. It prevented us from setting up an effective missile defense system. That's going to get um, Putin really rattled. The other issue is talking about expanding uh, and enlarging NATO to include countries like Ukraine and Moldova and ensuring our NATO allies that we're going to protect their territorial sovereignty. That's going to, those two things are going to send a message to Putin, along with enforcement of the Magnitsky Act and the economic sanctions. Dan Lipner? Uh, the idea of expanding NATO further, even though thus far NATO has shown itself to be a rather toothless tiger, either regionally or for any of the Allied members, with the exception of us. I find it problematic that, again, the United States is going to be the police well, of the world. So the key is to put Putin on notice that we are going to um, really uh, be forceful and aggressive in expanding our sphere of influence. Alan Moore? Oh, I'm sorry. Alan Moore? I, I, yeah, I, I, I would stand here on, on U.S. expanding NATO. We, we are not willing to, it, it's not clear that we're willing to live up to our hard power agreements with the new NATO countries of the last 15 years. And the thought of adding Ukraine to NATO right now is... Well, they've already given them affiliate status. No, no, no. no, no, That's very different. That's very different. Right now, nobody wants to touch them. I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask the the colonel about was his, his, his old boss, Colin Powell, once said, if you break it, you bought it. Well, I'm thinking about it, uh, an element of that in this particular case, Russia does Russia really want the financial obligation of this corrupt and broken state? Does the West want it? We don't want Russia to have it. We don't want Russia to tromp all over its sovereignty. But we're taught that their immediate needs are in the 15 to 30 billion dollar range which the U.S. is not prepared to do. I don't know that the, U- the EU is ready to do. I mean, this is one of these things. We don't want, we don't want uh, violence or threats 
but we don't necessarily want to take on the financial responsibility either for a corrupt and broken state. It's a real interesting dilemma, but we sure as hell don't want them in NATO. Ralph Winnie. I've got to listen to what Putin has said in the past. In 2005, he gave a major policy speech about how the breakup of the former Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe, and he highlighted that Ukraine was a painful loss. He talked uh, to G uh, George W. Bush in 2008, referencing Ukraine not as a separate country, but as a territory, and that as a territory, it could conceivably be carved up. Does, does, does Vladimir Putin legitimately think that the old Soviet Union collective of "Quote unquote nations is still in place that he has sovereign rule over the Ukraine as a as a state versus as an independent he, he sovereign nation." In that mindset and that mentality, and one of the big issues is the fact that so many of the Russian citizens are, are outside the borders of Russia. The Russian people do not support a direct conflict with the Ukrainian military, but what they are supportive of is the brothers and sisters in other countries that they they feel are being oppressed, and that's what. Putin's trump card is, is to push this issue of the Russians in the Ukraine. Even if it doesn't have any merit in the West, among the Russian people, it, it, it really plays up. Dan, Dan Lipner. Are you suggesting Putin won't get reelected if he doesn't listen to the will of the Russian street? I mean, at some point, he does have to listen to the, the Russian people. The Russian people don't want a direct conflict with the U Ukraine. Cultural, historical, political ties. There's a high intermarriage rate between Ukrainians and Russians, and the the idea of, among the Russians is they want to make money. They want to um, be able to travel and engage with the West. What they don't, what they're very concerned, deeply concerned about, is Russians in other countries that are being taken advantage of, and that is a big issue with them. It may not seem logical from our perspective, but within Russia. That's a big issue, and, and Putin is playing up on that right now. Congressman Al, you know, we're looking at uh, Secretary of State Kerry going over to Kiev. We, again, questioning the, the judgment on foreign, another foreign policy issue out of this administration, but we're hearing a lot of hawkish comments coming out of even Democrats in Congress. What is Congress's expectation here, do you think, in your experience? In, in, well... My experience has nothing to whatever to do with, with the current Congress. Coward. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks, Congressman Al, for that general insight. Let's go back and watch Bob set himself on Quitter. fire again. Quitter. Quitter. Yeah, I, I want to compliment you as the fire chief. Yeah, exactly. Bob but go ahead, finish your thoughts, though, Congressman. I've got to teach you how to light a scar. Um, the, the, the point I'm making is that it's hard to say your experience in the Congress, how does it apply to this? Because, frankly, the Congress is, uh, is a huge disappointment at this point. The, the fact that, uh, that some of the Republicans, I think, particularly the, the, the way out Republicans, uh, will be all for being just tougher in hell. And what the Colonel said was that is not the way to go. Uh, so, I, what will the Democrats do with an election coming up? Uh, I suspect that they will be very tempted to, to go to get tough too, so that you can all tell your your constituents that we're really standing up to that nasty Putin. It may be a very, very, very bad mistake to do that. We have a caller. 
Caller from the 203 area code, what's your question? Caller? Oh, um, yes, no, I just wanted to say that I really um, enjoyed hearing, um, I think it's Ralph Winnie's um, um, uh, comments, because I believe at one time he actually lived in Moscow. So I just wanted to make that point. I really enjoy his comments. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Mom. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mom. Appreciate that. Uh, when we go to, but when we when we um, when we look at uh, Bob Hines, when we look at the Republican stance on this, in in a situation that is typically a hawkish event, such as what we're seeing in Crimea. Uh, there's there's not a lot of certainty coming out of that region, and as such, the Republicans have kind of taken almost a stand-back-and-watch approach, which would be different in any other part of the world in this instance. How is this, how is this fitting into the Republicans' view of how foreign policy should be viewed globally or specifically to Russia? Well, uh, I would uh, remind us of what we heard about a half hour ago from the colonel. It might be wise if the United States doesn't get way out in front. There's a lot of other organizations and interests. There's a lot of ways to put pressure on Putin. Financially, I mean, it's easy to do it because we can just, you know, the West could just stop willing to play the later any role with their finances, and they won't be able to finance anything. There's a lot of things we can do to slow them down and make them think. And I don't necessarily believe that the, that the colonel is anything but right when he said that we might, it might be useful to get as, to marshal as much of a marching army in unison rather than have us out in front blowing the view. But, but Bob, I mean, do we really believe, and, and, and some Republicans have come out and said that this doesn't pose a true, clear, and present danger to our national security right now. This is, in fact, a regional issue. Let them handle it themselves. Where were they when we decided to attack Iraq? Well, a lot of the same... They were, they were voting with the Democrats to go on, go on in. Actually, it's not all Republicans. Not all Republicans are suggesting that stand-back approach is the right one. A fair number are condemning the administration for not taking more of a lead, saying that the Obama administration, for, for drawing its red lines and not following up, in their words, has caused this situation, which simply is not true. Why is that not true? I mean, if you're Vladimir Putin... And you have, obviously, national security resources based in Ukraine on a lease that they're paying $100 million a year on. And you've got your key warm water fleet base there, as well as the Russian nationals that are supporting that operation. How, how, is, how, how is that viable? The question is, what line has been drawn? And but if you're Vladimir Putin, why... Of course you're going to go in there and protect your resources. To them, it's a matter of national security. What it's evidence was their resources were under threat? There is no evidence that their resources no, were under threat. That's us speaking. You're not Vladimir Putin, quite frankly. I, I mean, I, I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, and Alan Moore, I'll go to you on this. Or Ralph Winnie, okay. if you want to take this one as well. You know, we look at a situation where if you look at Russian media, Okay. Specifically, if you look at RT, Russian TV, which you can view here in Washington D.C. and across the nation, controlled media. Let's be clear on that. All right, no, 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 I'll give you that. However, however, you know, if you look at that approach, they're saying, look, this is not a matter of questioning the sovereignty of Ukraine. All we're doing, if we wanted to question the sovereignty, we would have marched into Kiev. We're just protecting our national security resources, and they're. If you look at it. 
you know, independently, he may have an argument there. Well, they have some Russian, there's some military bases in the Crimea. Um, he, he gave $15 billion in loans to Yanukovych to keep him in his sphere of influence. It's like uh, Putin is trying to be both a troublemaker and a peacemaker at the same time, which was very effective in Syria. He shielded and armed Bashir Assad for many, many years. And then finally, when there was a degree of international intervention and Obama was unable to back up his threat of the use of force, Putin comes in and says, I'll offer to mediate and put together the solution. Alan Moore? Yeah, we're in a situation here where we don't have good options. We can't act alone. In, in terms of the politics of it, you have a couple, you only have a few um, Republicans who are being, who are, who are saber-rattling here. You have a lot of Republicans and some Democrats who are saying, we've got weak foreign policy. The president has not shown strength over time. That is not to suggest that anybody wants to send in troops or start flying planes or drop bombs. We don't have a lot of options. And anything we do, we're going to have to do in concert with Europe. Um, and Europe has got this, this economic dependency that we've talked about the last two weeks, uh, uh, particularly uh, on, on energy. I, I disagree with Bob that all we have to do is stop letting them deal in international financial institutions. That would, that, that would do massive damage to Europe, to financial centers in Germany and in England. They are not about to go along with that. Um, we, we don't have a, a full quiver here. We've got some arrows. We can toss them out of the G8. We cannot go to Sochi for the G8 meetings coming up in a couple of months. That's probably dead for now. That's not a massive deal. It's a little bit embarrassing, but there's not the huge amount of leverage we can exert, and we have to do it in concert. And there's just no way that the U.S. can go anywhere alone, so we're bound. The U.N., all that talk about the U.N., you know, we talked about how you... How useless it was, and then said the UN needs to do more. I thought, what a minute. They, they, they're not going to help. The, the, I, don't, I think we should take an issue to the UN, let the Russians veto, fine, but that's not a Ralph Winnie. Symbolic. Ralph Winnie. has to have a united front with Europe. And what's making it so problematic is the fact that Europe relies, direct, Western European countries rely on natural gas. Something like 80% of all natural gas reserves come from Russia. And you're not going to have Putin kicked out of the G8 because Angela Merkel won't allow it. Um, and it's because 60% of their natural gas reserves come from Russia. They're deeply afraid of the economic consequences. Dan Lipner. Well, in response to those economic consequences, it's a two-way street. If the Germans put on a sweater and find some other way of heat heating themselves, literally, if you actually want to put some teeth behind it, yeah, there's a cost on both sides. And the United States has foot the bill globally for all these issues for more than half a century. It's time for the Europeans to put up. But, it, well, but we're not ready to do that right now. Well, but, but let, me, let me ask this question. Congressman Allen, is Angela, is, Angela, is Angela Merkel the right lead to go in and take that front to Moscow? She is the one, is about the only one in the EU who has got the muscle uh, the finances, the, the, the political ability to do it. So it's it's not a question of whether she's the ideal person to do it. She is just the only one that can. Ralph Winnie? Well, she, you're right. She is the one that should step forward and say, we're with you, United States. 
but she's unwilling to do it. I mean, Germany has been putting the bill for other EU countries that have been on the verge of bankruptcy, and she's deeply concerned what, what the Russian reaction would be um, if they did stand firm with the United States. And that's what makes this whole situation very problematic. We have a phone call. Caller from the 559, you're on the air with Backroom Politics. What's your question? Caller? Um, it might be me. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> this, is, this is Judy Kohlberg at Eastern Michigan University. Oh, oh, oh Dr. Kohlberg, give us a few minutes. You're coming up on our next segment. Thanks for the tea, so we'll be right there. Stand by. Um, okay. You know, but when when we look at this as as a as a global aspect, and obviously we've got um, uh, Dr. Colbert coming on from Eastern Michigan University, we want to get her thoughts on this. But 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 the reality still dictates is that Vladimir Putin, regardless of what situation you look at, whether it's a defense of his national security or if it's just him just flexing his muscle. He's got a really delicate situation in hand. Does this really make him the front-runner leader of his world that he wants, Dan Lipner? Well, it's worth noting that this is a two-century-old issue. The Russians have always felt like the unwanted stepchild of Europe and have perpetually been looking for a foothold. This is continuing that theme. I'm sure uh, Dr. Winnie can go into that more than I can. Putin is still under this mindset uh, that a great empire has been destroyed. And he wants to bring Ukraine back into the fold as part of Russia. Um, The problem is um, the rest of the world is going to have to stand up and say no. If they do that, he will back down. But but the U.S. and the EU cannot buckle. This is very, very important that they make Putin. If if there's going to be a move made, it has to be made on the Russian side. But won't further isolating Russia just perpetuate this problem as opposed to bringing them into the League of Countries? The, if you look at the Russian people, they are trying to become entrepreneurial. They want to engage with the West and do business and make money. If this has a tremendous impact on their economy, there's going to be some uh, political backlash against Putin. Right. That's the whole issue with Sochi Olympics is the amount of money that well, he spends. Yeah. And um, that was a big issue. Well, Russians won the most medals. All of a sudden, that was off the table. What the Russian people, they do not want a direct confrontation with Ukraine, um, but they do want to ensure that Russian interests are protected overseas. There's no question right. about that. Well, with that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have Dr. Julie Cullen from Eastern Michigan University, uh, political science professor and Russian expert. She's actually uh, been in Russia for many, many years, is now a professor at Eastern Michigan University. She's going to be joining us in our next segment as we continue the discussion on the Ukrainian Crimea situation. This is Backroom Politics Live from Washington, D.C. We will be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, 
scotch selections that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Wow, Congressman Al, you're really getting into this. Wow. And Basie does it to me every time. <laughs> and this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, uh, joining us now for the, our continuing discussion on the standoff in Crimea is uh, Dr. Judith Kohlberg. Dr. Kohlberg is a professor at Eastern Michigan University, has spent a lot of time in Russia, has a long list of expertise dealing with Russian questions. Dr. Cohen, thank you for joining us, ma'am. Um, it's Kohlberg. Kohlberg, I'm sorry, Dr. Kohlberg, I apologize, <laughs> my bad. No, that's fine. <laughs> Dr. Kohlberg, first of all, again, thanks for joining us uh, up there in Michigan. 
quick question though. You know, we've been looking at the situation in the Crimea and 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 the and the Russian reaction to all this. What in your in your understanding of, of, of Russian politics? What is the true sense of the Russian people on all that's going on in Crimea? Are they supportive? Is this something that they're kind of cringing about the actions of uh, Vladimir Putin? Well, I think it depends on which segment of the Russian population you're talking about. Um, uh, there is a, a portion of the population that's intensely critical of Putin and his government. Uh, so there is a, a fairly well-organized and sustained opposition to Putin. And um, they see this entire incident for what it is, a, another attempt by Putin to um, extend the Kremlin's power, um, and also to provide a pretext for cracking down on internal dissent and opposition. Um, and so that would be one thing I would really emphasize is that Russia's international behavior um, serves domestic political purposes. So by raising international tensions, it's possible for Putin to justify the repression of internal dissent. Um, so anyway, so the opposition be, are, are very critical of, of these sorts of um, antics, uh, use of uh, the projection of Russian power abroad. But um, in terms of sort of the average Russian citizen, what we've seen from public opinion polls over the last five or six years is that uh, the, any kind of propaganda campaign that the Kremlin wages is really quite successful in shifting and shaping opinion. Uh, and so, um, given what I've seen of the reporting that's coming uh, from the official Russian media sources, uh, the message is that Russia is responding to um, an illegal coup that was staged by the United States and its Western allies in Ukraine, that a new government has come to power in Kiev that is composed of nationalists and fascists, and that Russia has acted legitimately to protect um, the, the Ukrainian citizens from these bandits who've come to power in Kiev, um, and, and particularly, of course, Russian-speaking Ukrainians, um, and is, in, in, in that sense, really acting responsibly. So that, that's the line that the Kremlin is giving to its own population. and given how the public opinion usually responds to propaganda from the Kremlin, I would say that most Russians probably support all of this. Well, Dr. Kohlberg, when we talk about the situation in Crimea, we do hear uh, not, not only out of, out of uh, uh, media sources in the Kremlin and in Moscow, but we also uh, external uh, media, the position of these ultra-nationalist thugs that in fact they do pose a danger not only to the stability of the region but to Russian nationals. I, I mean, how how dedicated are these ultra nationalists, or is this just more propaganda coming out of the Kremlin? Well, I I so you're talking about the Ukrainian nationalists. Yes, yes, ma'am. Yeah, um, it seems to me that they comprise a fairly small proportion of the opposition movement, um, but perhaps the most militant segment of the opposition. So it was a lot of the nationalists who were perhaps using the most um, 
violent tactics in the protests at, in the Maidan and Independence Square. Um, so I don't think that they are um, the largest segment of the opposition, but they certainly have maybe provided the kind of backbone of the resistance uh, to, to the former government of Yanukovych. Um, so I have to admit I'm not really a specialist on Ukrainian politics as much as I right. am on Russian politics, but from everything that I've read, it, it seems to me that they don't enjoy broad support in Ukraine. Uh, Dr. Kohlberg, going back to Russia now, when, when we look at the, the statements coming out of our State Department out of Secretary of State Kerry in Ukraine, uh, does that just add to the fire that exists inside the Kremlin of saying, look, this is our regional issue, this is an in-house issue, you guys need to stay out? Um. No, I don't really think so. I, I actually think that um, the White House and um, the European leaders um, are responding appropriately to uh, what Russia has done because, I mean, clearly, however the Kremlin justifies these actions, um, it's clear that they are in violation of international law. Um, and this is a, a serious threat to Ukrainian sovereignty. Uh, and it, it's an illegal use of military force. So uh, the, the president really needs to stand up to, to Moscow um, and, to, and the rest of the, the Western world and the international community needs to make it clear to uh, President Putin and his government that this is not acceptable. And it seems that just in the last few hours uh, that that Russia is taking actions that that may be the beginning of a, a de-escalation of the conflict. Uh, and I don't, yeah, I don't know if you guys already talked about this in the first hour, but, um, uh, well, Putin called an end to the military exercises in Western Russia along the border of Ukraine. He ordered all of those troops back to their bases, and it appears that that ex exercise was terminated uh, early. But does, so is that sign? That's is that a, a good sign? sign I think. Pardon? Dr. Colbert, Dr. Colbert, is, is that a, is that a sign actually that Vladimir Putin might be looking at an out, or is this just another way for him to stack the chips in negotiating with the EU and regional uh, regional leaders in that area? Well, um, I think that uh, it's not likely he's going to pull the troops out of Crimea. Uh, so that, that's a fait accompli. So Russia's in control of the Crimea, and there's really nothing that Ukraine or anyone can do about that at this point. Um, so he may have accomplished what he set out to do, um, but probably at the urging of uh, UN officials and, and other diplomats, um, the, the Kremlin was, it was probably made very clear to the Kremlin that they needed to de-escalate the conflict because of the danger of it spilling over um, into eastern Ukraine. Um, so, I, again, I didn't, I didn't listen to the first hour of your show, right. but um, in the last couple of days, there have been lots of protests in eastern Ukraine and some concern that um, a civil conflict could spread across the eastern part of the country 
that would kind of drag the Russians in willingly or unwillingly because we don't really know what their role was in sort of fomenting that unrest. They were probably involved in some way, uh, but that it could spin out of control and, and really lead to a kind of breakup of Ukraine, which which would be in no one's interest, I think. So it, it's, I, I think my perception of the Kremlin is that, uh, and, the, and, the, and especially their, um, their foreign policy decision-making, decision-makers and their decision-making process, that they're uh, very um, astute politicians and, and they understand uh, international affairs very well, and they don't want a war. I, I, that's not what they want. So I, I think that we will see a kind of de-escalation of tension and rhetoric, uh, and, and then the serious bargaining will begin between right. Russia and the West and the, the current govern, government in Kiev. So I right. think that Putin is using, will use this occupation uh, of the Crimea as a way of leveraging the kind of change that the Kremlin would like to see in, uh, in the Ukrainian government. Right. Congressman Al, you have a question. Yes, I, I find Putin to be a, a very puzzling character and to be a, a bit inconsistent with uh, the Russian leadership uh, after Khrushchev. Uh, he he, he's been, Khrushchev was really very much an extension of uh, Stalin in many, many ways. And then we went through a Siri Yeltsin and, and, and some others. Uh, and and the, who was the guy with the... Gorbachev. 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 And <clears throat> Putin seems to have taken us back more toward the Khrushchev-Stalin approach. Is that his intent? Uh, is he... Am, am I correct in making that observation? Oh no, I, you're you're absolutely correct. Um, Putin is a, a product of the security apparatus of the KGB, um, mm-hmm. and his entire government is filled with individuals who rose up through the KGB or other related security services. So in Russia, these are referred to as the Siloviki, or the, the kind of the, the strong guys, the, the men willing to use force. Um, and uh, their understanding of what Russian government should be was very much shaped by their experiences in the Soviet period and, and in, those, in those security institutions. So, um, excuse me, I'm sorry. Well, that's okay. Now, now, Putin is dealing with a very different world than was Khrushchev and uh, Stalin before him. <clears throat> so right. he, he can't behave exactly the same way, but he seems right. to have a similar attitude. Yeah, in many ways he has a worldview that uh, came from the Soviet era, a kind of us-them sort of understanding of the world. Um, and uh, he believes that um, he, he very much has uh, tried to learn from Russia's past, not just the Soviet past, but going back into the Tsarist era. And he believes that um, the record of Russian history shows that Russia is a strong nation when 
it is centralized, when the Kremlin is firmly in control, uh, when there's a kind of clear line, a clear message. Uh, and um, so this is like his, his version of Russian democracy, is this kind of uh, vertical of power, as he calls it. Um, uh, so that you have you have the Kremlin's clearly in control, power is centralized in the hands of very few people, including him, the top leader, um, and then he makes the decisions that are best for the people as a whole, um, consistent with Russian values. And he would also, but he would also argue sort of world values and global values. So right, Russia sees itself very much as a part of the international community and not outside of it. Um, uh, if we this current leadership believes that Russia has a lot to contribute to the contemporary world, um, and they don't see Russian values as inconsistent with global values, including a lot of democratic values. So he would say it's a kind of Russian style of democracy. Of course, his critics argue it's not democratic at all. Uh, but there, I mean, if we're going to compare the current system with the Soviet system, uh, we really have to. Um, uh, Grant and you know, uh, be be truthful about the the degree of freedom that Russians have in their daily lives. So the typical Russian citizen today has a, a tremendous amount of individual and personal freedom, um, in sharp contrast to uh, citizens of the Soviet era. So so there are large spheres of freedom within Russia. Um, as long as people don't tread into certain areas that the government has decided they, they shouldn't be acting in. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a very delicate balancing game that he's trying to play, sort of you know, a kind of democracy that's consistent with Russia's traditional values and Russian institutions. I have a, another question. This is maybe a little fantasy, but it would seem to me that they had the, the uh, Olympics, and Russia mm -hmm. came out of that very, very well, and Putin came out of that very, very well. They both, uh, in terms of winning uh, gold medals and in terms of uh, all of the other things that come along with having a successful Olympics. <clears throat> Do you think that the, the Putin would have taken these actions if this hadn't occurred so quickly after he felt so puffed up by the Olympics. So, so did the Olympics contribute to this decision to use military force in the Crimea? Um, contribute to, to his decision making. Decision making. Yeah. A little puffed up. I, yeah, I, I guess I would see that there's really a, that all of this is a coincidence that all of these things happen simultaneously. I mean, there may be some connection between them. Uh, there's always connection between events, but um, well, I, don't I mean think one was the cause of the other, but the uh -huh. sense of right. it. You know, right. Right. Well, to the extent that the the Olympics are an indication of the kind of role that Russia wants to play in the world. I mean, I think the Olympics were a message to the world that Russia's back. That, you know, that Russia is a great nation. Russia deserves to be respected. Russia has a lot to offer the world. Uh, and, you know, the, the huge investment that the Kremlin put into the games um, and um, the way in which the whole Russian society was really 
um, persuaded to put their focus on the games while they were occurring um, does show that they, they were very important for them. Dr. Kohlberg, Alan Moore with her last question. Yeah. Um, sure. It, it, sure, thanks. It, it seems to me that, that you, you make the point about, about uh, Putin wanting to, to elevate Russia's stature, and, and it, it makes me wonder uh, how it feels now about being isolated, about being criticized, um, and, and, uh, and about possibly being uh, kicked out of, uh, of the G8, or at least not having the G8 meeting, that those things do matter at some level to him. My own, my own view on the Sochi piece is he didn't want to get too involved while the Olympics were still going on. It's, who knows what would have happened if, if, it had not, if they had not corresponded. He might have been more active sooner, uh, and events might have moved in a different direction. I guess we'll never know that. What my question mm-hmm. is, about, is about the, the, uh, the wealthy elites who uh, are both afraid of him and also support him. They, they help finance the Olympics. Uh, I'm sure that whenever he needs something, he has various people he can go to. Uh, we know that if people get too wealthy and too assertive on their own, they end up in prison. Um, but, but, but some of these guys, I assume, who have a lot of their money parked overseas, they have their kids in schools overseas, they have big houses in various other countries, but they still live uh, in Russia, live in Moscow, have a lot of connection. I would guess some of them are really, really nervous. Does he listen to people like that in your mind? Um, well, yes, I, I think I mean, his social network is composed of those very powerful people. Um, and there's a big overlap between the business elite and the political elite. Uh, um, so, um, yeah, and, and that... And that I think it's, a, it's an excellent question because it also points to the way in which the world that we're living in in the 21st century is very different from the Cold War world, that Russia really is interconnected with the world in the way that the Soviet Union wasn't. And so the Soviet had, Union had its own sphere of influence of other communist countries, but wasn't connected tightly to the international economy. And today Russia is. Um, there are Russian firms that have investments all over the world, as you're pointing out, uh, wealthy Russians who who sort of travel all over the world and live in many places. Um, their children are being educated abroad and very much westernized in that sense. Um, and so that, that process of kind of cosmopolitanization of the Russian elite um, means that there are ways to communicate with the Kremlin um, using a kind of common language. Uh, and and that there is a lot of overlap between the Kremlin worldview and the, and the Western worldview. We're not talking about that kind of sharp bipolarization that we saw in, in the Cold War era. Um, and um, in the media today, there were, there were lots of stories about many communications uh, going to the Kremlin and to, um, from Western leaders and um, from international organizations. And so they're being subjected right now, the Kremlin's being subjected to a pretty intense um, 
level of pressure from the international community to defuse this tension, to not allow it to escalate, and to begin to negotiate some sort of resolution to the conflict. And I think that that's uh, what the likely outcome of this situation will be. It may take a few days before that whole process uh, is set in motion, but that, that would be my prediction about what's going to come. Bob Hines, one more question. Professor, do you do you think that the the ultimate result will be that the Crimea is uh, be, becomes uh, Russian controlled completely, or will it return to be part of Ukraine? Well, it it may end up in some sort of limbo of being like a protectorate of Russia. So there are other regions that this has happened to where there are, are large concentration of Russian speakers. So we look at Abkhazia and South Ossetia and Georgia and the Transnistria region in Moldova. Um, those are regions that are still part of uh, those former Soviet republics, at least in terms of in, from the perspective of the international community. But de facto, they're really connected to Moscow. Um, and um, uh, so we've seen this pattern in the past, and it may be um, something that the Kremlin is trying to repeat. The difference between the Crimea and those other regions is that the Crimea is much larger. Uh, it has a greater strategic significance. Um, it is very important to Russia historically. So they may be, I, I think it's likely that they, they could be there for a long time, or that or that Crimea will be given some sort of autonomous status. Crimea has already declared itself to be an autonomous republic. Uh, so it's declared its independence from Ukraine. And we may see a kind of continuation of that position. Interesting. That, that's great insight. Uh, Dr. Judith Kohlberg from Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Dr. Kohlberg, thank you very much for joining us. Hope you'll join us again. Well, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Uh, okay, when, thanks. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk still a little bit about international affairs. Uh, underneath the rug, that is Ukraine and Crimea, Benjamin Netanyahu was in town and made quite a splash here in Washington. We'll talk about that and a couple of other items when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back. Bye-bye. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller. Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu the most diversified with some of the best known brands and some that you might even know but you might want to give it a try everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno you can go all the way from your nine dollar little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the 
Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again, I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., for the final segment of Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of. Uh, along with everything going on in the Crimea, there was another piece of uh, interesting foreign relations events that happened here in Washington this week. If you were driving anywhere near the White House, you saw a huge security presence that was surrounding Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, who was in town to address the uh, American-Israeli Political Action Committee, or APAC, huge event, huge political pull in that organization, but President, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu did not mince words coming into Washington, D.C. and addressing the folks at APAC. Uh, he, he gave greetings from Jerusalem, which is the, which is the I'm going to paraphrase, that's our capital, get used to it, Tel Aviv's just... Uh, an, an annex of Jerusalem. But uh, joining us right now is our normal Washington insider and our Jewish expert, why not? He is Carl Tubin. Thanks for joining us for this segment, Carl. Uh, hey, hey, Carl, you know, when uh, President Netanyahu comes into town, it always makes news, but obviously it was kind of pushed under the carpet a little bit because of what's happening in Crimea. But still, for, for President Netanyahu to come in, and talk about Jerusalem being the sovereign capital of Israel. Uh, he's taken a really strong push on that, and he's even pushed away a little bit from the bilateral talks with the Palestinians. It seems to go back and forth a lot. Why is the roller coaster with with Benjamin Netanyahu so prevalent in his in his dealings with not only the Palestinians but it also seems with the current administration here in the U.S. This is not, this is uh, par for the course. He has done this over and over again. 
He comes here. He seems to be emboldened, uh, and he wants to 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 put out some some strategy. Uh, they want Jerusalem to be their capital. Uh, uh, he had a long discussions with the president. Uh, it seemed to go well, but who knows? Uh, he has his own mind, his own mindset on this whole thing. Um, they want him, the president wants him to not to build settlements. Uh, <clears throat> that probably rankled him a lot. Um, just, just he, he's, he, he always, when he comes here, he sits down with the president, and then he goes to APAC, and he says a lot of other things, uh, sometimes in opposition to the president, etc. Uh, the president opened up and said, you know, welcomed him, saying that Israel is our <coughs> Is our friend, we're support, we support Israel, etc., etc. Uh, Netanyahu probably says, I don't believe it. Dan Libner, you know, there's mixed reviews coming out of the uh, meetings between President Obama and Netanyahu. Uh, some said it was very terse, it was kind of cold. Others says that there's, there are other sources that are saying there was kind of a a, a little bit of a warming from the last time that this happened. Uh, there's no question that our relationship with Tel Aviv in, in Israel and with Netanyahu as a whole has been damaged. Is it damaged beyond repair, or do we have to just wait till the next administration that there's no way to salvage it with this current administration? It's never damaged beyond repair, but when Netanyahu comes to town, Netanyahu comes to town speaking to essentially two audiences. One is the domestic American audience and to continue to strengthen APAC's already muscular stance on, <laughs> on Capitol Hill, uh, which has caused well, both Democrats and Republicans to frequently bow to whatever APAC interests are. In addition to that, there is the Iranian issue for which uh, Israel's interests are a little distinct from ours. And Iran, while I would argue sanctions have worked in the past with Iran, they have also shown themselves to be a fairly bad actor as far as arming uh, the Israel's enemies in the region. So, yes, there are, there are interests, and those will always be taking place, but the conversation isn't just what we're seeing publicly. It's also the private conversation. Alan Moore? Yeah, I think what's unfortunate this year, this is an annual thing. APAC has this, uh, this meeting. It's set up a year in advance. It's always... Uh, about this time, the president goes, the secretary of state goes, the, uh, the, uh, the, the head of state from Israel comes. Um, and, and what was unfortunate this year is that, that because Ukraine was dominating everybody's attention, and most particularly Secretary John Kerry, um, some of the conversations that might have occurred that would have been helpful couldn't because Kerry was gone. He was heading off to Kiev. He did address the group last night. But this is John Kerry's top priority until Ukraine suddenly came along. And he's been working this one really, really hard. Iran is tied in with it. So it was uh, unfortunately an opportunity kind of missed. Um, now, if it gets buried in the news and there's controversy, that's not all bad. But uh, it, all of our lives in Washington, um, the challenge of the Middle East um, uh, comes up. Every president wrestles with it. You make a little progress here. You lose some steps there. You make some progress here. Um, 
who knows uh, if 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 we will ever get to a resolution, a two-state solution, etc. But but uh, I didn't see any big news. I just was sorry that 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 one of the key players uh, was so preoccupied. Not that the president wasn't also right. But Bob Hines, you know, the usual discussion on. Israeli sovereignty came up with Netanyahu's discussions and his address at APAC. Uh, he continues to put pressure on America not to be fooled by uh, what's happening in, uh, in Iran. Any sort of progressive mindset is still a danger to national security, to Israel. Does that fall on deaf ears, do you think, here in America with not only the members of APAC, but with uh, the American public in general? I don't think it falls on deaf ears. I think we've heard it many, many times. And I think, you know, it's, 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 I mean, there is no new situation for Israel. I mean, they're, they're, they're looking for a solution for the Middle East. They're looking for, try to find a two nations situation in, in, in Israel uh, with, with the Palestinians. It seems they can't get together. They can't find a solution. But the fact of the matter is, they're talking privately a little bit, sometimes publicly a little bit, sometimes unofficially a little bit, but at least nobody's fighting there right now. And that's some plus. And it, hopefully, hopefully, sometime, you know, sometime we're going to get some leadership on both sides that are going to be able to find a way to make peace along the Jordan line and find room for both the Palestinians to have a state and Israel to have well, a state. Well, Carl, Carl, today? Carl Tubman, following up on what Bob said, you know, it it's almost seems like the American public wishes that we had the days of Yitzhak Rabin, uh, who was more progressive, more open to dialogue, uh, more of a, of a peaceful strategy versus a strong-arm strategy. Is there anybody on the forefront that you see in Israel that could possibly take the place of Yitzhak Rabin as being that great peacemaker, that great deal-maker in there, Tel Aviv? There are some, but they are kind of pushed to the back because of, of uh, Netanyahu. <clears throat> and, and I want to follow up on something that, that Bob said in the question you asked him. Iran is very important in Israel's mind because with everything going on around them in the Middle East, Jordan, Syria, all the refugees, etc., Iran, they still feel that they are the ones that are under the gun, that if, <laughs> if Iran ever gets a bomb, that they would, they would throw it at Israel and it would decimate that population. So that's why you have a lot of push, push, push on, on Iran, etc. Dan Lipner? Well, I just wanted to clarify that some of the issues in Israel right now and the Palestinian issues, uh, you need to actually segment it. The Palestinian territory in the West Bank is relatively calm. It's Gaza, which is an unsustainable region in and of itself that, to some extent, nobody wants. Yeah, the, the, Israels don't, the Israelis don't want to deal with it, the Egyptians don't want to deal with it, and there is no economy, there is no way for that area to sustain itself. And absent the international community stepping in and coming up with a true resolution for Gaza, it's not clear how this problem goes away. But beyond that, dealing with Iran or the other regional players, yeah, there are legitimate complaints and worries that the Israelis have. 
and I would argue that the last great peacemaker was actually Ehud Barak that actually put Jerusalem on the table for a potential peace process, and the Palestinians walked away. But now we have a brand new set of issues, and unfortunately demographic issues, that are going to hit Israel pretty hard, including the fact that the right-wing conservatives in Israel are growing in power just by sheer numbers. But Congressman Al, you, you know, when, whenever uh, Benjamin Netanyahu comes to town, he always plays well with Congress. He always gets a great support out of both sides of the aisle when it comes to him taking kind of a, a strong, sovereign approach to the Israeli question. It, 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 do you see that continuing, or with some of the dynamics that are changing in Congress right now, is there going to be more uh, support or less support for him? Well, you, you noted the power of APEC. It's kind of the AARP of international relations. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly younger. <laughs> I'm sure the 25-year-old members of APEC are not real thrilled with you right now, Congressman. What I mean is they're very, they're very powerful politically in the United States, uh, and, and not just among uh, Jewish people, but uh, among almost anybody who runs for public office, uh, you know, is visited by them and so forth and so on. I remember once meeting with a, a group of, of, of Jewish people in my district, uh, and the issues were totally different then, it was 20 years ago, but they were talking, and I said, do you realize you're asking me to support positions you wouldn't support if we were applying to the United States? And they then, well, they then said, yes, but. But I got to tell you, I am, have been around a long time, and this has been a major issue for a long time. We have had liberals and peacemakers in charge in Israel, and they couldn't do it. We've got Netanyahu, who has yet to prove he could do it, and we've had tough, uh, hardline guys before, and they couldn't do it. Uh, and I'm just beginning to wonder, is there any way that anybody can do this, can, can sort out this terrible mix of issues? Carl Tuvin. The sad thing is, and my mother uh, used to say this all the time, that if peace could come to the region, Israel has so much to share with its neighbors. It shares a lot with its neighbors now. But there, <clears throat> there's technology, uh, there's agriculture, there's all kinds of things that, that Israel could share with its neighbors that would, that would boost their economy. Uh, and it's just a shame, for some reason, that uh, the, the Arabs have never seen it that way. And it, it, who knows what's going to happen. Kerry uh, evidently feels that he has uh, a, a trump card, that he has something that he thinks can, can go. We'll soon find out. Well, you, 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 Congressman, now go ahead. You've got a situation in which... Your basic problem is bigotry, and one of the toughest things ever to overcome is bigotry. And I, I think the bigotry now sometimes goes both ways. 
that uh, Israel has been hated for so long that it, uh, it's beginning to not trust anybody and, 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 and so forth. So that I, I'm just extraordinarily pessimistic that there is a solution that we're going to see in the foreseeable future. Dan Lipner, you disagree. Well, yeah, the, the, the history of Israel and the necessity of a, of a Jewish state um, which I absolutely agree with, does kind of conflict with the facts on the ground with how the Arab states view Israel. The, the rhetoric of the hatred and the bigotry, that's comparatively new. The, most of the Arab states originally view, viewed Israel as Europe continuing to flex its muscle in an Arab region. And that has expanded with various dictators using Israel as the reason for the immense poverty in the Arab regions and creating it as a straw man to blame every, every other poor person's problems on in, in all of the Arab countries. That said, it's now expanded beyond that. You have enough rhetoric for 60 some odd years, it begins to take root. And that is the problem that we're now dealing with. And until the rhetoric on now both sides, the Israelis and the Arab states, unfortunately Egypt has taken a giant step backwards toward dealing with those issues is going to be a challenge. And that's where the conversations need to begin. It needs to begin on the street regionally to actually engage and say, listen, economics is what can make this work. But Alan Moore, I actually want to go back to a point that, that uh, Congressman Al made and get your take on, you know, whenever we hear APAC, whenever we see heads of state from Israel come over, they ask us to support issues that normally wouldn't fly when dealing with other international affairs issues or even some domestic issues. There almost seems to be a hypocrisy uh, embedded into when we deal with Israel and the Palestinian question. Is that valid? Well, I don't, I don't know that I would, I would call it hypocrisy. I'm reflecting on Al's comment about APAC and AARP. They both enjoy enormous uh, influence in the electoral process in America. AERP delivers votes, uh, APAC delivers money, and some number of votes, but the money can translate into votes. Um, it's, our, our system uh, is, uh, is open to, uh, to these things. Now, it's not just money, as, we, as, we, as we've learned. We've watched some guys spend enormous amounts of money in recent years, and I get much for it. Um, so it, with, with, with APAC, it's not just that they can deliver money, they can deliver votes, and they also have a strong, compelling, and persuasive case oftentimes. I think it does it an, an injustice to members of Congress to simply suggest that APAC says jump and our folks say how high. There may be a few where that's the case, but they come in, they know their stuff, they make their compelling case, they, they know the history, um, they talk about we've tried from the left, we've tried from the right, but the people on the other side of the table don't have the power to deliver, even if they want to. So we muddle through, we, 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 we build settlements, we take over territory, we don't build settlements, we yell and scream about settlements. The Gaza's a god-awful mess, as Carl says, today and for the last, for a couple of generations, for the last generation, Israel has been the main economic driver of the other side, providing jobs and so on until terrorism uh, uh, reared its ugly head. Reared its ugly head and caused them to 
to have to greatly increase security. It, the, the, the situation changes, the politics change, the environment changes. Iran is moving inexorably towards trying to get a, uh, a nuclear weapon, um, which is you know, an existential threat to, uh, to Israel and its mind. Um, and we continue to, uh, to, to muddle through, hope for the best, pray for a breakthrough, Maybe one of these days, but it's the, 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 the key parts don't seem to be in place at the moment. Carl Tuvin. I just want to note that uh, about eight to ten years ago, uh, people from the Labor Party who at that point were uh, in charge came to this country, sat down with APAC, and told them to cool it. So APAC hasn't been, uh, APAC is very strong today, it was very strong back then, but at times, one, at this one point, uh, representatives of labor came and said, you guys are playing a heavy hand, and it's too heavy and cool it. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word. Obviously, APAC's not going away anytime soon. We're going to talk about APAC here for years to come. Uh, but with uh, 10 minutes left of the show, it is now time for my favorite part of the show. It's Tell Me a Story, where we talk about all the buzz, innuendo, and, and rumor mongering that goes on here inside the Beltway and outside the Beltway. Uh, Bob Hines, tell me a story. For the last 18 months, I think I have said several times that the uh, pipeline, X pipeline, is going to be built from the uh, tar from the tar stands up in uh, Dakotas up uh, up in Canada in Canada all the way down to uh, the the uh, big Texas coast. Uh, the State Department has said, in effect, uh, it won't have any impact, uh, actually, you know, from the uh, environmental from the side. Environmentalists, and uh, I think probably it's going to happen. I have, I have, uh, I've, I've said it before, and I've said it again. It's something that is going to happen, and I think finally the administration is is in a situation where their own State Department and everybody else has been saying it won't cause any problems, and that are going to exist anyway, and it's a it's a plus for jobs, and it's a plus for more security for the United States in the sense of the uh, the oil that it brings. From friendly from friendly sources, we can count on forever, and I think it will happen. It may not happen until after the election, but I expect it to happen this year. You know, I, I want to follow up on that because I, I was recently having a conversation with a couple of friends of mine who are close to the XL pipeline situation, uh, and and they told me an interesting story. They said, "Look, you guys are under the impression that this whole." Uh, inaction by the administration on the XL pipeline is causing the pipeline to be at a standstill. Make no mistake about it is that pipeline is being built today. That pipeline is actively being built and actively being uh, put together and being prepared for operational use. The only the only debate is where they're going to make that connection, whether through Nebraska, around Nebraska, how that's going to work. But make no mistake about it is there's money and jobs flowing into that pipeline right now. That it has demonstrated its ability to create economic windfalls for those areas. Make no mistake about it. I agree with you. That pipeline is going to be but, built. Yeah, but yeah. it's got to be built 
it, you know, they're not gonna they're not gonna run it all the way through some other place. It's gonna have to go through. It's gonna have to go through Nebraska. More or less. No chance. Oh, I agree. Everybody, everybody in Nebraska seems to be in favor of it. I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Oh, yeah, on the pipeline, I feel like Groundhog Day. I never, I never give up. <laughs> I, I agree with Bob, but that's just being no, no, moderated. I do, too. I yeah. do, too. I'm just saying that we have the same conversation every few months. And one of these days, it'll happen, because to not do it would be idiotic. So it, today, the president uh, released his budget, his major the, the presidential budget. Uh, it's mostly garnering yawns. Uh, the, the Congress uh, in both houses has already said, we don't intend to do a budget resolution this year because we cut a deal that's going to last for two years. Now, that does not in any stretch mean that it's unimportant or insignificant. It is the detailed plan that the president would like to put in place if he could. There's a big thing missing, and it's very unfortunate, and it speaks to the politics of the document and the, the throwing up of hands. For the last couple of years, the president has taken some flack from his own party by proposing a change in the cost of living indicator, the CPI index that's used to adjust payout on programs that, are, that have, that have a, a CPI kicker, like, the, like Social Security, but also an impact on taxes because we increase brackets by a, a CPI. So, it saves money on the spend out side and it raises a bunch of money on the tax side. Um, he, the president used to take flack from his left for it. He basically said, I'm willing to talk about this. You give me some more taxes. What he's done in this budget is drop it. He's trying to have his cake and eat it too and say, we're open to it, but he's still got a trillion dollars in newly proposed taxes in there. So it's very disappointing since we sit around this table and say, we got to tackle the entitlements, we got to tackle the big stuff. And, it, and the, the president, at least, is for no particular reason I can see, except maybe this little political thing, but I don't see a lot of political benefit. He stepped back from it, and uh, it's a sad day. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. I'll tell you a story. Um, uh, the vice president has made several stops on in television land to have interviews, etc. He uh, he was on the View. He was on the uh, the couple of the uh, late night shows, etc. Uh, I <clears throat> it's it, it's very interesting because he 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 kind of he kind of is in there, but he's not in there, and he's going to make his decision. Probably at the same time Hillary's going to make his decision. The day after. And it's going to be very, very interesting to see this whole thing as we get through 2014 and into 2015 and 16. There's a great, you know, the political magazine came out this weekend. Major, major story about the vice president. Very interesting. Wow. Very good. Dan Lipner, tell me a story. Well, I, I have to chime in on a couple of things, and then my story. One, Alan's point about the change of CPI. Yes, he is correct. That pesky little political thing did get in the way because, similar to the Israel-Palestine issue, you have to have somebody to negotiate with. And I challenge you to name one Republican that gave uh, the president credit for putting the change of CPI in his previous two budgets. 
and getting nothing in return for negotiating with Republicans in Congress. Um, but that's no reason to not put it in. It is. It's just political cost to you. Politics matters. And as, as far as some of the stuff in domestic politics, I'd like to all celebrate the latest wearer of the rainbow flag, Governor Jan Brewer, uh, with her moves in Arizona. And I predict that at her insistence, the Arizona Cardinals will draft Michael Sam. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> wow, thank you for that one, Dan. Hey, you know, speaking, uh, tailing on to the president's budget, I'm going to do something that you very rarely hear me do, and that is give credit to the president for something he put in the budget. Uh, the president has made an initiative of part as part of his creating jobs, creating infrastructure, helping education, of creating these technology transfer, technology and education cooperatives in several parts of the country. They have been largely viewed as being successful. Uh, in his current budget proposal, the president has called out for 45, I believe, new technology centers to be developed as part of his budget initiative to help create jobs, help education, help get technical training to the right people. I commend the president for that. I commend the president in saying that, look, instead of putting it into uh, social programs that promote, uh, you know, that promote, call it for lack of a better term, uh, the... I can't even think of the right term right now. But basically, social programs don't get people out of poverty. It promotes poverty. By creating job centers and creating technology centers like he is promoting that have been largely viewed as successful, he is helping get people to start bootstrapping their way out of poverty and help creating a livelihood and creating a future for themselves. I commend the president for that, and I hope Congress listens to that. I think that is a smart move, and Congress could be the big winner if they go along with the president on that. That may be the only time this year you may be here, hear me commend the president for something. I, I know you're shocked by this. I, I believe it. Anyway, that's just my take. That's my story. Hey, uh, we've had a great program. Thank you again uh, to uh, Colonel Bill Smullen from Syracuse University, for Chief of Staff, to uh, Colin Powell at, Secretary, at the Department of State, also, thanks to uh, Dr. Judy Colburn out of Eastern Michigan University for her insight. Uh, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, Carl Tuvin, Dan Lipner, uh, we will be back next week here at Shelley's Back Room. Bob? The place to be if you want to be on top of what's going on here. Absolutely. You can follow us, by the way, on the web at www.backroompolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter backroom politics and if you have questions or if you have any suggestions or you have a suggestion for telling me a story you can email me justin at backroompolitics.org we will see you next tuesday here from 1331 f street in the heart of our nation's capital washington dc have a great week america we'll see you bye-bye